electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. said to me, he said, you know, you, you have to be so much better than everyone else that it doesn't matter about connections, it doesn't matter who you're the daughter of, and you weren't. This is a conversation about reinvention, not just once, but over and over. Julie Sweet leads the North American business at Accenture, a global consulting giant that employs more than 400,000 people and produced more than $32 billion in sales last year. Julie's territory made up almost exactly half of that total. I'm not really sure how most people become consultants. Ideally, they get good at something and then show other people how to do it better. Julie's path was different. She was a lawyer, a partner at one of those swanky firms, Cravath, Swain and & Moore, and left that to be the top lawyer at Accenture. She parlayed that job into a bigger job, and that's the key detail here. Julie has a history of doing that sort of thing, and I wanted to find out how. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, tell a friend. I sat down with Julie Sweet just this week at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square to talk about her path to the C-suite of one of the world's top consulting firms and how her father, who painted cars for a living, set the no-excuses example that helped her get there. Here's Julie Sweet. You know, it was really about an opportunity. Um, so I'd say it started with I left a law firm where mm-hmm. I was for 17 years to become the general counsel of Accenture. So that was the first step, and that was really about um, there being this great CEO and a phenomenal company, and what they said to me was, we're not looking for a lawyer, we're looking for a business leader with legal experience. And that was really intriguing, because it really meant I'd be at the table in a different way. And then that led to this next opportunity, but I think it started with that first decision to go to a company that was looking for something different. Why were you looking for something different? Because Cravath, I mean, well-known law firm, you kind of reached that top tier of the profession, uh, why were you looking for more than a lawyer job? Well, at the time I wasn't. I think the best people are always the ones that aren't, not always, but are often the ones that are not looking. So this was a cold call from a recruiter. Hmm. But as I look back at it, um, I was 42 when I joined Accenture. My father had just died that summer very Hmm. suddenly from cancer. And you know, I sort of think back, I think those were related because I was sitting there and I'm like, I'm 42, I just suffered this loss and I got this call with a really incredible, very interesting opportunity. And even though I was very successful and many people were like, you know, why would you leave, right? You've reached the pinnacle. Yeah. I could sort of see my future and I knew what the next 20 years would bring if I stayed at Cravath. Like, you know, you do different deals and so on. And 
I think losing my dad at the same time, you know, made me really think about how do I want to spend the next 20 years, right? He was pretty young when he died. He was 68. Mm. Uh, and so uh, looking back, I think they were not unrelated in my decision to, to go ahead and, and, you know, take a leap and, and come to Accenture, which has been the best career move of my life. What was it about losing your dad that made you think, how do I want to spend the next 20 years in, in that frame rather than, boy, I'm glad I've got this sort of stable job that I'm good at that I know how to do because life can be uncertain? You know, it's interesting because I think you could go both ways. For me, because he was really young to, at 68, mm -hmm. I felt as if life can be short. And, um, and my dad was always one who really encouraged me to reach for the stars. He believed in me. And I thought, you know, I don't want to play it safe. I don't want to know what the next 20 years look like. And uh, I want to be true to who I'd really been, I think, to get to that point, someone who did things that were you know, not necessarily expected. And so it was kind of a conscious decision to live, um, continue living the way that you know, I think would make my father proud and that he had taught me to, to live, to like, continually ex aspire to make a bigger impact and um, bring, bring more value to other people and, uh, and you know, not just to play it safe. Tell me about your very earliest memory of your dad encouraging you. Okay, well, you're going to think this is kind of an interesting memory, but um, when my dad was, uh, when I was in high school, I would go to speech, speech contests. I, I'd figured out that like the Rotary Club and the Lions Club would have these contests and you could make money and we needed money for college. And mm. so my, my mom and dad flipped a coin. My mother went to the debate tournaments, which was a lot of work. And my father said, I'll take the, you know, the, the speech contest. And so my sophomore year in high school, we went to one at the Lions Club. And I was in the final round and I lost to this other young woman. And on my way home, I was kind of complaining to my dad because she had been very cutesy, and I've, I've never been cutesy. <laughs> she was the daughter of one of the senior members of the Lions Club. My father was not a member of the Lions Club. He painted cars for a living. You know, we, we, we drove up in the VW Bug, right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, my dad had one sports coat, right? It was very different. And my father said to me, he said, you know, you, you have to be so much better than everyone else that it doesn't matter about connections, it doesn't matter who you're the daughter of, and you weren't. And so, like, essentially stop whining, <laughs> right? And, and it was one of those things where it, it definitely, like, look, you know, I'm, I'm almost 50 and I'm still talking about it, right? Now, it's interesting that over time you learn that, in fact, there are some unfair situations. Like, mm -hmm. you can prepare and work, and, you know, I've certainly seen that in the diversity realm. But that sort of lesson where my dad was willing to be honest with me that, you know, I was good, but I wasn't so good that it was just completely hands down. And if that's what I want, that's what I aspire to be, I just have to work really, really hard. That's interesting. That's so. similar to the advice that a lot of black mothers give their sons oh, really? and daughters about you have to work twice as hard to be seen as being, you know, the idea that leave, if you leave no doubt on who's the best, then. Right. Then, then, then at least you have nothing to regret. Right. Right. And uh, so it's, it really definitely affected me. And it also, I, he didn't do it in a way that he didn't show resentment. Hmm. Right? He just said, you got to be that good. In that right. situation or ever? Um, 
ever. Like he never, he didn't act like, look, yeah, oh, poor us, I'm the painter, I'm this or that. He, he was very matter of fact. And so that also, you know, it's just like, that's a reality. You don't come from, <laughs> it's like when I used to ask for something and he'd say, you know, like I'd want to buy something and he'd be like, born into the wrong family, you know? <laughs> and of course it would drive me crazy. But, uh, but I think it was a good, it was good for me to really just focus on what could I control and not be upset, you know, and he didn't allow me to blame my loss on things that sure contributed to it, but, you know. So you grew up in Southern California? I did. And, I mean, big car culture there, so lots of cars to paint, I imagine. Yes. Uh, what was your attitude about money and things then based on? Well, um, you know, my parents really valued family, and mm. even though we didn't have a lot of money growing up, I mean, I remember when I, you know, we had one pair of shoes. There was a period when I was growing a lot and I had one pair of pants because I couldn't keep up with how fast I was growing. You're pretty tall. You know, I'm pretty tall. Um, but my parents, I never felt poor. And I, I always felt like I had what was most important. And that was my family really focused on, um, on being family and also giving to others. My parents used to say, we may not have money, but we have time. And so mm. they did a lot of service and we were right there next to them. And uh, one of the most influential things that ever happened to me when I was growing up was when, I, was, I think it was about third grade, my, uh, my parents were part of uh, something at church called St. Vincent de Paul, and they would go out and, oh, sure. and, and, and respond to urgent requests. Yeah. And they met this young, this young man in, uh, named Rocky and a young woman who'd had a child together. And they got to know him and sort of stayed in touch, and Rocky got into some legal trouble. And uh, my father and my mother, uh, really wanted to help him, and they were worried that he wouldn't get a good, you know, get a very good lawyer because he was going to have a public defender. Mm -hmm. And so I remember them talking over. They had five hundred dollars in their bank account, five hundred dollars, and that was what he needed to get a real lawyer. And so they talked about, you know, should we do it? It puts us at risk. And they said, you know, this is important. And they took their last five hundred dollars, their entire savings, to help this young man. You know, and like my mom says, life worked out. You know, it, it worked out just fine, and that was the right thing to do. And uh, and so I've always tried to remember that as I've prospered, you know, I feel blessed that you know I make enough money now that I can you know help family and friends and other people in need, and that I remember what is important, mm -hmm. right? And. Uh, and it is about family, and it's about doing the right thing, and it's about helping others. Tell me about going to college. It sounds like you started planning pretty early if you were doing speech and debate competitions that paid prizes when you were a sophomore. A lot yes. of kids who have some means don't start thinking about it until junior year. So how did the college idea enter your and your family's consciousness and, and a plan start to form? Well, you know, it's funny because a lot of things I do now um, to help, you know, at, at Accenture we have skills to succeed and all these programs are about jobs come mm. from the way I grew up because mm. my parents to me are the American dream. You know, my dad painted cars for a living. He had his GED. My mom um, was a hairdresser and she went back to college so that they could make a better life. You know, they went to college. To, um, so she graduated my freshman year of college and that wow. was a decision on my parents' side. And so they really believed that education 
was the way out of poverty and the way to get ahead. And so from the time we were little, that's what my parents would talk about. And But they were also realistic. They said, we don't have a lot of money. Like, you're going to have to figure out a way to pay for college. And so I knew that from you know the time I was pretty young. So I started my first speech contest was my freshman year in high school <laughs> uh, because my parents you know, really believed that education was, was important. And they, from an early stage, said, you're going to have to earn it. We, we're going to help you as much as we can. And, uh, and so I think about now, you know, the things that I really want to do as a leader, right? Because I've, you know, I'm, I'm more successful than I could have ever imagined back then. And mm -hmm. so a lot of what drives me now is making sure that we're giving opportunities to others, that we're investing our communities, and we're doing things um, that give back in the same way that, you know, I had growing up because I had a lot of mentors and a lot of people who helped me along the way. Um, so, where did the uh, I don't want to call it argumentativeness <laughs> because I don't know if you're argumentative. We don't know each other that well yet, but certainly um, eagerness to debate and and make your opinions known. Where did that come from? Yeah, I'm not really sure. My mother would definitely say um, that I like to debate uh, when I was uh, in high school, but. Um, you know, I think it came in some ways over the dinner table because, you know, my parents believe that you have dinner together and you sit around the table and we used to spend hours having discussions. And they weren't debates, but they were from a very early age, they believed in the, you know, in, in discussing things, discussing things that were happening in the world and, you know, and having conversations. And I think that, um, you know, sparked an interest in me to like know about the world and to you know like to have that kind of dialogue. That you know, I sort of you look back, you sort of you can see how that leads to being interested in debate and mm -hmm. so on. Did you know where you wanted to go to school for college? You know, I I didn't. Um, I thought I did, but uh, I it was not Claremont McKenna College where I ended up going to school. Uh, but uh, one of my teachers went to Claremont McKenna. I thought I would want to go to Berkeley or Stanford, and I got accepted at Stanford, but they wanted my parents to mortgage their house, and mm. I was not going to do that because I had Some a sister. Some things have changed, yeah. Right, so I had a sister <laughs> who, um, you know, was coming up after me, so I didn't want to do that. And so I thought I would end up going to Berkeley. This is a fabulous school. Mm -hmm. And uh, my, my English teacher, Mr. Boyce, wrote a note to the school, basically said, this girl is going to get in everywhere, and you should give her a scholarship. And... Uh, I went to visit the school and I fell in love with it, and they gave me a phenomenal scholarship, mm -hmm. and uh, and I, that school changed my life. How? Well, when I went to it was a small school, and uh, it it really had professors who cared, and it gave me a lot of experiences. So, for example. I got to study abroad in China and Taiwan, and my mom and dad used to say, I cannot believe the school wrote us a check, because they did. Like they said, here, here is the money that you would normally have for your scholarship to go pay for the school abroad. And so, you know, my parents could never have paid for that, and they applied my scholarship, and I spent a year living in Beijing and in Taiwan, and that really has been very formative. Um, not just the experience I had, but the approach. Like so. When I think about my career and I talk to others, one of the things I say is you need to take risks and take paths that are not necessarily well-trodden. And when I studied Chinese back in, uh, graduated of 1985, people studied Japanese if they studied. Yeah, uh, I was about right? to say, Japan was taking over the world Exactly. In the 80s. You know, no one studied Chinese. So and why did you study Chinese? You know, I had a mentor. I met a guy, um, a 
a gentleman who was on the board of directors of a company called the Irvine Company who gave me a scholarship. He was on the board of directors of Claremont McKenna College. And I sat next to him at dinner at the scholarship uh, banquet where I received the scholarship. And he asked me the normal questions. What are you going to study? And I said, international relations. And he said, what language? And I said, I, you know, I, I study French, but that's kind of boring. I've told this story in front of our global CEO who's French, who always laughs. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, how about Chinese? And I knew a little bit about China because of my speech and debate experience. And then I went home that night and I told my parents, I'm going to go study Chinese. Well, I mean, did you, did you look into it? or like, No, what? we had a whole conversation. I, as I said, I did know a lot about Asia. Right. And we talked about Japan. And he's like, China's the future. And he had a business um, Okay, so he did China. explain. So he had, yeah, he explained. He so we had a okay. whole conversation. And I said, that sounds fascinating. And he's like, this is really the future. And it doesn't seem like that now. And he really got me excited about it. And, it, and I... And I think from an early stage, it was sort of like, it was also different, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so my parents and I, none of us had a passport. Like, we'd never been out of the country. And I said, I'm going to go study this. And I started freshman year of college with 8 a.m., five-day-a-week classes. So mm -hmm. definitely to get you out of, you know, like sort of weed out the not serious. Um, and I ended up spending a year there. And it taught me a very important lesson about being willing to do things that are not on the beaten path, right? Mm. So studying Chinese, it wasn't like, there was no one rewarding me for studying Chinese, right? Yeah. Um, it was listening to people, right? So here was a very successful business person who, you know, really had great advice and seeking that advice and seeking to understand. And so, you know, having, you know, mentors and advisors uh, and, and mostly then challenging yourself because, you know, at that time, when I lived in Taiwan, I went there first. I mean, martial law was still in place. Right? There were very few foreigners. Um, there was uh, not like a regular, pr easily done programs there. And, uh, and it gives you confidence that you can achieve anything, right? So um, it gives you confidence because you, because you went because through that tough experience? Exactly. Okay. You know? And so pushing yourself to do something that is outside your comfort zone, right? That isn't what everybody else does, so it's tried and true, helps you build confidence. At what point did you know that you had made the right decision, though? Because I'm trying to think when, at least in the popular consciousness, it became clear that, oh, boy, China really is the future. And I'm thinking well into the 90s. It, it's interesting you say that. Um, it, I'll tell you when I, the exact moment that I knew, well, that was really smart, was I was a... Uh, second year associate at Cravath, and I got a phone call from the head of the firm, who I'd not even met. Okay. Sam Butler would like to see you. And I walked in his room, and he said, we have decided to open an office in Hong Kong, and I understand you're the only one in the firm who speaks Chinese. You may be the only person um, who's actually been there, and we would like you to help us open the office. And... It, you know, it's, it's interesting, like all of that experience mm. that suddenly came in contrast to when I'd interviewed to work at Cravath. And then one of the partners I interviewed said, you know, we have no offices there. Someday you'll have to leave and go do something with this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, but. So we, what year is this? So that was 1994. Um, that was 1994. Okay. So that, uh, and what was interesting actually is when I was graduating from law school, and I was interviewing, what I found out was that the 
the people, and I, I actually often tell this to young people, is that the people interviewing me, they didn't care, they didn't need me to use Chinese, but the fact that I spoke it and that I had lived there at a time when other people weren't living there made them believe that I was more likely to be a leader, hmm. that I could you know, handle difficult situations, because people understood that it wasn't easy to just pick up study a difficult language, and live for a year in a very different environment. And I got more job opportunities, not from companies that needed me to speak Chinese, but because they saw something ref that in me that was reflected by the fact that I'd made those choices and been successful. As if you could juggle four flaming torches. Like, boy, anybody who's going to go through the trouble of learning to do that um, has to have something. Yes. Does that influence the way you look at job candidates now? It does. I mean, to this day, I look um, when when I look at candidates and I see candidates who have lived abroad and uh, in a in a non English speaking uh, country. I do I do know what that means. Hmm. Uh, I also see in them usually that they're more likely to be empathetic to other people because they've experienced not being the majority in the room, mm. right? And so, and it's not just around diversity, it's, it's actually truly empathy, right? Because when you've been the person that feels uncomfortable because you're speaking a language as a second language, because you don't know the culture, right? You learn, I think it's humbling and you learn something. And I think empathy is a very important characteristic of leadership. Why? But, um, because, you know, as a leader, you will often have to deliver tough messages and you'll often have to help companies um, and the people you lead change. And you know, you look around what's happening now, it's an unprecedented amount of change and we're having to help people really change the way they think, how they learn, what they have to do. And in order to communicate well and to bring people along, you have to be able to understand the recipient, like have the empathy of what's it going to feel like. So what does it feel like to you know, work at a company and be there 15 years and now have people say, now you need to learn new skills and mm -hmm. you're going to have to learn them every few years, right? How does, that, how does that person feel in terms of stability, confidence in the ability to learn? Um, you know, we, not a, a couple of years ago I was with one of um, our head of technology and we were asking the group of senior leaders you know, when was the last time that you'd taken training? And at the time, these were our most senior leaders. Many of them hadn't taken it for a long time because they hadn't had to, right? right. But the world is incredibly different. If you ask that same question just two years later, 100% of our leaders will say they've taken training in the last 12 months because they have to. But this was, you know, I guess it's more like three years ago where, you know, we were still making a transformation in terms of expectations of leadership. Sort of understanding how hard it is for someone who feels like I've made it, training is for junior people and how to make that tilt, and understanding some aren't going to be able to make the journey. And that's important too. Right? And so this is a, a very concrete example of the kinds of things you have to do as a leader. And I believe if you have empathy, you can then, you'll communicate better, you'll treat people with respect. Not everyone will make the journey, but it won't be because you hadn't tried and you hadn't also made it possible for them to understand why. And that's what, in a, in a world of unprecedented transformation, 
it's it's not a top-down hierarchical command and control. That's really not going to work. Huh. You seem to have a, a history of counterintuitive thinking, maybe going left when others would go right. Has that ever gotten you into trouble? Has it gotten me into trouble? No, I don't think it's gotten me in trouble. I will tell you the. Um, I will tell you one big learning I had around that. So when I was a young partner, I was doing some really innovative work, and I'm I'm known to be very collaborative. I'm a big believer in go find the smartest people, you know, to help you. It's not all about me. In fact, my strength is finding great people to you know collaborate with. Hmm. And I was doing some innovative work that wasn't recognized at the time as being as innovative, and eventually it would be, and you know, give it, get, get the firm and myself lots of credit. And uh, I got irritated because uh, the firm was not being receptive, wasn't giving me the skills, and I started saying, "Well, I can do this." And I almost made a big mistake in something I was creating because I wasn't being collaborative. I was sort of saying, well, fine, if they're not going to recognize that I've got this great idea and this is going to be you know, fantastic, I'll just go it alone. And my strength had never been trying to do it alone. My strength has always been bringing the best people together and working together. Hmm. And uh, in that case, I identified the issue that I almost missed you know, before it was too late, <laughs> got back on track. But I, I always think back at that because... When you want to be a bold thinker, when you want to take risks, you have to recognize that you may be farther ahead. And, um, and that goes back to having empathy. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you don't do it, but it does make you have to think about, well, how do you bring people along on that journey? How do you convince them? And the last thing you should do is what I did, which is like, fine, I'll prove it to you, right? How did you pull yourself back from the brink? Was, was somebody looking out for you, kind of throw a flag and say, hey, wait a second, that's not? Well, I discovered this error in my thinking, and I was like, well, okay. You know, it was, it was early enough before the transaction was done, and I went to, I still remember I called, you know, one of my partners who was, like, on vacation someplace and say, hey, and he's like, yes, you know, that's the wrong way, but you can go this way. And, and it was just, it, it was enough of a jolt for me that I was, because I was not used to making mistakes, right, mm-hmm. um, that I was able to say, okay, I've got to take a step back, let me, you know, get a couple people to review this, and everything was back on track, and, you know, no one, no one the wiser. Um, but it was, I, I, you know, I remember exactly why, and it was because I started saying, well, fine, if they're not going to support me. And, and, and I think it's an important lesson because it's, it's easy to say, well, I want to be the bold, and if they're not with me, then it's their fault, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 you know, guess what? Sometimes that's true, right? I've right. told people, like, hey, sometimes you may be in the wrong place. Right? Or you may be ahead of your time. But a lot of times it's about how you're communicating. It may be that you're in the wrong place. And sometimes maybe you are ahead of things, right? And sort of making sure that you're, you recognize that being bold doesn't mean that you're either always right or that everyone's wrong, right? And, and that's why I think it's important to have, to not surround yourself with people who are for example, all bold thinkers, all risk takers, right? You really need the balance. Um, and it's funny, I, someone once said to me is, um, and I love this, this idea of be fearless but prepared, hmm. right? So being a bold thinker and a being a risk taker does not mean you don't listen to others. And it means you have to actually be more prepared, right? 
um, more listening to actually be as effective um, as you need to be. The, the seeming contradiction in fearless but prepared is often it's a sense of apprehension that helps prepare, like thinking about what might go wrong. Absolutely. A fear is a great driver. <laughs> and, uh, and so on the one hand, you're fearless, but I'm like, I never want to be wrong and I you know, want to be very, very careful. So you're, you're, it's a good point. It's very true. When you think about the skills that today's young people are going to need that are different from what perhaps they're, they're told to expect. Kids these days are being told, you have to learn to code. Everybody has to learn to code, for example. Are, are there things that you think are important that perhaps aren't being widely talked about now? Well, it's interesting. I'm not, I think it's in some ways being widely talked about, but not necessarily to young people. And that's this idea. You hear a lot of CEOs and our clients will talk about it, and we talk about it because it's a big part of our success at Accenture is about a culture of continuous learning because mm. uh, jobs are changing, companies are changing, and as leaders, you know, I talked about it earlier, you've got to, as leaders, be willing to take training and so on. I think what we haven't done enough of is explain to our young people who are in college, like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, because what it means is that when you graduate from college and you think, okay, now I'm going to go, I'm going to go learn a job, but like my sort of formal training and sort of that discipline that you have to have when you're in college, right? Because you're taking classes, that's sort of over. Mm -hmm. And I would say that if you want to be successful graduating from college um, today, that what you need to do is be a disciplined learner where you are setting goals for yourself every year about what am I going to learn this year beyond just the training program I'm, I'm in, right? So, for example, if, um, you know, whatever company that you're going to, there'll they'll, they'll maybe be a, a, a formal training program, right? But, you know, if they're, you talk about digital, for example, you know, what are you learning about um, about the blockchain, right? Mm -hmm. What are you learning about artificial intelligence? You know, what is what is being written about in the news or talked about at the water cooler um, that that you sort of say, I'm going to make sure I understand what this is. And the reason to do it is because it, you are going to have to, as a as a professional today, and, and actually professional or non-professional over the, your lifetime have to learn a lot of different skills in that. And we've, we've seen that. I mean, right now, the OECD says that 65, our children, 65% of the jobs they'll have do not exist today. Okay, so there's going to be a lot. And so you have to sort of get into the habit of saying, I'm going to continually learn, not just because someone's told me I need to, because they've fed me it, but, but that's going to be just a part of who I am. So on the weekends, I'm going to read something. I'm not just going to play electronics and that. And it doesn't have to be a ton of time, but it needs to be in this sort of disciplined way. Hmm. For me, the way I did that was slightly different. Is For me, it's always been about communication skills. Okay. And I think communication skills are critical. They're really important. I've, I've been fortunate. I was because I did speech and debate very yeah, young. You're still learning communication I was a good, skills. But even to this date, every single year, right, long before I had to start learning about technology, I've said, "What am I going to do this year to become a better communicator?" And when I came to Accenture seven years ago. I ramped that up because I suddenly had a bigger stage in terms of more people and global. And every year I've thought about 
you know, okay, what am I going to improve? So two years ago when I became CEO, I said I'm going to ban the memo, and I had to become good at being on video, right? Mm. Um, later that year, I started... What was the hardest thing about that? Being short. Mm. The, the attention span, my first video that I did on my own, uh, introducing myself to the 50,000 people in North America was eight minutes long. Mm. And I got this feedback like, I never thought I'd listen to an eight minute video, but I'm glad I did, hint, hint, <laughs> you know? And so there was tremendous feedback that it was a great way for people to get to know me, but eight minutes is way too long, right? <laughs> uh, you know, a year into it, one of the important things for us is to talk about our business and our brand and what we're doing in the market. And so I needed to become, you know, much better at being able to do interviews and, you know, both press and, and media and working on that. So obviously I'm much later in my career, but early on it was, you know, being a really good speaker on panels. You know, mm. one of the ways to build a reputation as an expert is to put in the work to be really good at, you know, and, and go to, so when I was a lawyer, I did, um, uh, continuing education for lawyers where they were looking for panels is one of the ways I built my reputation. Well, that requires a lot of work to not just create the materials, but to be a good speaker that people wanted to listen to so that yeah. you then get asked, right? So I've always had that discipline around communication, and then I've now had to do it to, to move from being a lawyer to be at a technology company and then to become CEO. But I really think it's important for young people to recognize that their careers are going to change much more than you know my own, my parents, and that learning, continuous learning, is really a part of what they need to do to be successful, and they cannot rely on just you know. Well, this is what the company told me to learn. So it's August. What are you learning this year? Blockchain. Okay. Uh, it's you know I'm an inch thick. I need to be five inches. It's uh, people think about it as being you know primarily in the financial services, and I'm seeing it go very very quickly across industries. And so it's an area that I'm spending time on to kind of really understand because we've. So we've this been, is Bitcoin, Ethereum. You know the the concepts behind. Exactly. That. And so what are the and what are the what are the applications beyond the financial services? So you have a CFO of a hospitality company saying, what does this mean for, you know, how I look at data and protect data because it's replacing potentially the general ledger? Um, you know, what is the, in the industrial company saying? What does it mean for how things are going to be built for industry, for industrial companies? And so I had to, you know, I, I, I I know about an inch around blockchain right now. I'm getting deeper because it's something our clients are really focusing on, and so I'm spending time there. How did you pick that? Well, I picked that because, well, we, we first of all we look at what's the next waves, right? Mm -hmm. So we see blockchain, artificial intelligence, and augmented reality. So we've been 50% of our company today after four years is digital cloud and security. The next three areas that we see is very big are artificial intelligence, blockchain, and augmented reality. So I was already spending time because those are important. But blockchain is one of those ones where because over the last few months, I've had so many different C-suite um, members at our clients who are not in financial services asking me about it. So I'm like, time to double down, right, <laughs> to get from an inch to five inches. Uh -huh. Artificial intelligence is a very important topic today. I think it's critical as we think about the importance of companies reskilling, what it's going to have the impact on jobs. And so I go back to, you know, our job and role as a company is to make sure that 
We are also thinking about our communities and at the table for the most important issues. And so if you think about artificial intelligence, there's like so much going on in the news today, very polarized, right, about is it a good thing, is it not? It's automation, is it good or not? How is it going to affect people? And so I've spent a lot of time because artificial intelligence, automation, analytics are very important for our clients. Mm -hmm. And they're also important for us to think about as companies in preparing our communities and thinking about the right policies. And so that's how I kind of think about what are the important topics for our clients, you know, for my company and for our communities. Diversity is a topic that's been riling Alphabet, Google, in recent days as an employee wrote this memo uh, expressing a point of view that was partly, you can't express conservative opinions at this company because uh, there's a liberal echo chamber and partly ideas about affirmative action and diversity that uh, I think it's fair to say most of Google's workforce disagrees with. If that were to happen at your company, how would you handle it? Well, you know, first you'd start by handling it transparently, right? Um, transparency is very important. And uh, two years ago, we became the first professional services company decision that I made, along with um, our global CEO and our um, global CHRO, to release our demographics uh, mm -hmm. and in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And we didn't do it because you know, the numbers were great. Uh, we did it because we thought it was important to, we were, we were pleased with our progress, we've been making progress, but we thought that to have really truly rich dialogues internally and externally, we needed to like put our numbers out there, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to rally people to say, you know, diversity is really important to our business, we want you to help without being willing to say, and where are we, mm -hmm. right? Um, we, when we had last, I guess it's now a year ago in July, we had the terrible week where we had, you know, two people killed by, um, two African Americans killed by police officers and then the shooting in Dallas. We had what was the first for us um, open discussion about race. And we had a, di it was called Building Bridges. And we had a webcast and we had people from all around the country, everybody was invited. And then we had rooms after the webcast where people continued that dialogue. And I remember people saying, we were shocked really, we had no slides and it wasn't scripted. Because <laughs> right? it was meant to be a real dialogue, and you know, uh, earlier this year, and so that's actually that idea of building bridges is is, hap is continued organically. We have conversations, and so this year, when um, in sort of January, February, where a series of things happened, where you had Jewish cemeteries being desecrated, there was a mosque um, uh, uh, desecrated in Canada. There was um, the the first um, action by the administration around you know what people will call the Muslim ban the travel ban mm -hmm. and there was a lot of um, discomfort and unease and we had a, one of these same webcasts around with our interfaith um, employee resource group so you know, those are all things and they were tough questions like you know I was asked things like you know why why didn't you speak out right why didn't you know other for the travel ban there were other CEOs who spoke out and you didn't you know and and so Transparency and being willing to have that dialogue. I have learned in this job, no matter what you do on any topic, you are never going to um, satisfy everyone, right? Whether that's true around po politics, that's true about policy. Uh, but what I have learned is if you're transparent about why you're doing, what you're doing, and why you're doing it, people will respect you for 
being candid, being transparent, and they may disagree with you, but they'll still respect you. Uh, and and that's you know that's how we would handle something like that. Um, if if an, an employee were to express a point of view that runs counter to that narrative of, of openness and embracing, we, we would have a dialogue about yeah. it. I mean, if, if you know, I mean, look, and I I don't want to. I can't presume to be in Google's position or how they're handling it, right, and I'm not. Right. I'm not following it enough to know that, so I don't. You yeah, know, I'm trying not to I'm ask just, you right, what exactly. should Google do. Right. I know. I just know that. I have to pay you a lot of money. Right. For you exactly. To that question. But um, <laughs> I just know that our first principles are around having an open dialogue, being transparent. Now, the specifics, like, are we going to allow people to have hate language? No. I mean, so it's not like right. everybody gets to say whatever they want to say, right? And it's really about open and honest dialogues that are respectful, right? And, you know, that does mean that there are, can be very polarizing views, and we're trying to create a workplace where you, you can have those different views and have disagreements in a respectful way. You are uh, on Fortune's list of the most powerful women. And uh, great list, by the way. I used to work at Fortune. Okay. I always wanted to go to the most powerful women uh, conference, but I, I was never allowed to go. It's a phenomenal conference. Like yeah. You were blown away by the women who are there, but not with me, but with the others. And my mother loves the list. So. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great list. What, what have you taken away from being sort of in a room with, in conversation with other women who have achieved uh, at a certain level? Well, you know, one thing I, when I, every year when I go to the Most Powerful Women Conference, I am really, truly awestruck by just the quality and the accomplishments of the women in the room. And, you know, I, I sometimes wish I could just, like, bottle that up to really have my daughters understand and to have, you know, women kind of across the country be just inspired and, and motivated to aspire, right? That it's very doable because, you know, today we still do have, you know, a gap. And some of that gap is, I think, having enough role models. Some of that gap is because um, it, is, it is difficult and you get into you know, parts of your life and you say, do I want to do this? And sort of being in that room and seeing the impact, right? It's not just about, it's not about status, right? But the You quality. said parts of your life and do I want to do this? Do you mean the whole lean in do I wanna, idea? Do I want to work this hard? Do right. I want to go through what I'm going to need to you know, go through? And I think, I think men and women you know, face that because... Mm -hmm. You know, whether you're a man or a woman, reaching, you know, becoming the CEO, reaching the C-suite is very difficult. There's a cost. Right? There is a huge cost. And I think both men and women face that. Is this worth it? You know, I used to say to young people, I said, you know, you can't ever do things just because of the title because the cost is too high. You have to love it. Now, I once had someone say, but I don't love it every day. I'm like, you're not going to love it every day. Don't take this too literally. But you have to, you know, you do have to love what you do. And I think over time you have to, at least in my case, you have to want, you have to find a higher purpose, right? Hmm. Because, you know, I do feel like I have been incredibly blessed. I'm very successful. And as I look forward, 
you know, I think when I was younger, I was driven to achieve, right? I wanted to be able to take care of my family. I wanted to, you know, not have them worry, not have to worry myself about money. I'm now at a point where I really want to make sure that I'm leaving behind a better world, that I'm doing things for, you know, stewardship is really important at Accenture, and it's a value that I was really drawn to when I came here Mm -hmm. about, you know, a better place for our people, leaving it better than you are. And I think... I think as you become more senior, you know, and you're, you know, I'm less motivated by the, you know, I used to only have one pair of shoes, you know, and more to, you know, what can I do to contribute and, and have, a, and, and love what I do, right? Yeah. Is there any kind of a disconnect or strangeness in seeing how your daughters are mapping out their ambitions and how they view the world. I know there is for me, right? Because I grew up working class, the, the, the son of a minister and an artist, and my kids have a few more things, a few more opportunities right. than I had. And I wonder, am I, am I screwing up their worldview? Is it, is it too easy? What, based on what I've been given, how do I frame things in the most productive way for them? How do you handle that? How old are your children? Six and a half and nine. Okay, so my, let's say mine are nine and ten. I think it's hard, and I think all of us who've come from working class and made it good, I think we, I constantly have this conversation. You know, I'm, my husband and I are always talking about, because on the one hand, we, we're not willing to not go to a nice hotel just to teach our children that, you know, <laughs> You have to earn nice hotels, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're like, how far do we go? You know, um, for us, we try to really keep grounding our children in our values. And so, for example, you know, service was a big part of my life with my parents, and something I started doing when I was in high school. And mm. so, um, a few years ago, my husband and I deliberately looked around to say, what could we do of, with service in our community with our children, so that they could begin to be exposed to not just words that not everybody has this. And so we started working with a homeless shelter near us, been around for 100 years, so it's sort of this homeless shelter that found itself in an enclave of a very nice neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And we would, for about almost two years, once a month with our children, we would plan a party for when the parents had to go to their mandatory meeting the kids in the shelter had nothing to do and so we would they said you know we could use a party during you know some activity for them and so my my daughters got to know and they were pretty young because they're now nine and ten we did this sort of about three years ago um, so they were like six and seven and they started getting to know the kids and they would know every month that if the same kids were there, they'd be happy because they made friends with some of them, like really close friends, but they'd be sad because they knew if they saw them again, that meant they didn't have a home. Mm. And they started, you know, we would always give our clothing and stuff that, and they started being like, okay, mom, this is good enough for the shelter. Oh, mom, can't give this to the shelter. It's not nice enough, you know, and so to this day, you know, they think about that. And well, you know, they still have like a wonderful life and they build it. I feel as if them seeing us do that service, them getting to know, uh, you know, kids in a very genuine as a way as the kids can only get to know each other, right? And say, and they say like it's they're just like us, and I'm like yes, you know. And so, the thing we're trying to do is instill in them 
this idea of service and, and also doing it from a young age where they get to know that everyone isn't, truly isn't as lucky as them. Mm. And hopefully that will help keep them on the right path. Yeah. Last question, 30 years ago, uh, an insightful executive gave you the advice to study Chinese, Mandarin, I take it. Yes. Now you're that executive. What language should a young person study? That's a, that's a really interesting question, actually, because I, uh, I think the next horizon is Africa, you know, mm -hmm. sort of sitting here today. Mm -hmm. You know, where is the kind of untapped potential? I, I don't think it's Asia a, as much anymore. Um, certainly for young people who want to go places, and yet I would not say go learn the African language, I think it'll be done in English there. Hmm. Um, so I would probably, I would, I would probably say Spanish, hmm. um, because there's more places you could go. And I would, um, and Chinese is still good because it's obviously a large part of the population. Any that, but I focus less on the language and more on going, studying a language where you're going to go live there or like go live in Africa for um, a study abroad, to live in a place that's very different than home. Like don't, don't go to Australia, don't go to England, right? If you're gonna study Spanish, go to someplace in South America and really live in a culture where you're going to be uncomfortable, where you have to navigate and be successful not using the things that you've grown up in. Because I think that's, as you think about global thinking and what's going to be successful is having the empathy that comes with that, having the experience of, of, of being able to navigate in different cultures, that's going to help you be a better leader on the global stage to understand what it means to be global um, and, and to, I think, give you the confidence to do new, new and bold things. So Africa is the future. Maybe learn Spanish. Because spend time in Africa? How, how do well, you... if you were going to learn a language, I'd okay. say Spanish, Spanish, because that you could go to a lot of different places that are not, not you know, like you could go all of South America and to learn, and a lot of South America is not comfortable, right? right. So, right. Lots um, of right. So I'd say language-wise, Spanish or Chinese, because still, I think yeah. living in China still is is an experience to 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 be done, uh, but um, but more importantly is live abroad. My thanks to Julie Sweet. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever fine podcasts are distributed, and please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Next week, hey, I'm on vacation, and I can't figure out a way to publish a podcast from a boat off the coast of Alaska, so the podcast takes a week off for the very first time, but that's okay gives you a little chance to tell more friends about it, tell them to check out this Julie Sweet episode, and the back catalog. Also, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, and YouTube. There, I'm taking your comments and questions, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, if you want to catch that. Go to Twitter, type in John Fort, follow me. Go to Facebook, type in John Fort, follow me. You get the idea. Uh, I'm tackling there some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. And meanwhile, unless you're on vacation, hey, even if you are, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or Fortnox.com. It's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. 
always love hearing from you. LinkedIn's good for that too. Do LinkedIn. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.